Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about communicating with kids in an adult way. One of the controversial things, at least inside my family, when we were raising kids, was the tendency I had to be either from one extreme to another in terms of the way I communicated with my kids. I was either the kind of person who would, you know, still baby them or speak to them in a very playful way, a childlike way, or I would essentially speak to them the way I would speak to any other peer and trust that they would catch up or ask questions and somehow find a way to communicate back with me. And for some members of my family, that was not appropriate. Their attitude was that you needed to at all times speak to a kindergartner like a kindergartner and a second grader like a second grader and so forth and so on. And the reality is I just chose a different course. I chose a different course because I was comfortable that way. And I also chose a different course because it appeared to be working. Right now, I've got kids who are very late in their teenage years, ballpark between 18 and 21 years old, and, um, you know, seem to have been pretty well adjusted, considering the fact that their father spoke to them in such an unusual way from time to time. Before I get into some detail behind that, though, I want to talk a little bit about a follow-up to the previous show, the previous show, The Perspective of Growing Up, and whether certain things that, as a kid, you're going to get into could be viewed as a mistake or should be viewed as just normal. And how much I worry for kids who are in home life situations where, you know, just experimenting with, with the world is viewed as some sort of a unforgivable sin. Uh, I didn't grow up in that environment. And one story I didn't tell in the previous inappropriate conversation that ties in directly with this was uh, kind of answers a an, an question that I sort of dodged a little bit. And that's that if you figured out how to get your bike to the used record store and back, and if you've come up with a method of saving your money and buying magazines, buying, buying the same kind of magazines that your dad and your next door neighbor and other men in the neighborhood were accumulating, either via subscription or by making one-off purchases at the gas station or whatnot, if you're buying your own personal copies of magazines like Playboy and Penthouse, how do you get them into the house? How do you make that bike trip um, without you messing up your used magazine purchase. And once you're in the house with it, what do you do? And I'm often amused when I see uh, teenage or, you know, young adult oriented comedies where the main character has magazines stuffed underneath their bed or between the mattress and the bed. I didn't have that problem. Somewhere along the way, early junior high school, I'm guessing, my parents gave me a trunk and gave me a trunk with a lock on it. Now, for me, one of the things that happened in seventh grade, for the very first time, first year of junior high school, that was different was, for the first time, I had a locker that I was supposed to lock, that not only was it okay to put a padlock on that, I was supposed to do that. And so I remember going through the process for the first time of learning how to undo the combination lock, you know, and you know, pretty much the master lock brand. And you get past seventh grade and eighth grade, you switch school districts along the way, and you're probably going to have an extra one of those padlocks. Either you took one home at the end of the school year, forgot the combination, had to buy a new one, or the, the new school you're in required a slightly different model or a different brand. 
and I had a padlock from my seventh grade year with a combination that I still remember because it was the first combination lock that was truly my own. And when we switched from one house on one side of town to another house on the other side of town, one of the things that found its way into my bedroom, into my bedroom closet, in fact, was a trunk. I always sort of imagined that it was the kind of trunk my dad would have had in the military, although I think it was probably bigger than that. But the kind of trunk you'd see and depicted in films like Full Metal Jacket, you know, so you're big enough to pack clothes into for a long trip. You could probably put more clothing into it than your average suitcase, as a matter of fact. But that's not what I used it for. I used it for books. I used it for toys that I didn't want my younger sister playing with or things I didn't want my older sister or older brother messing with. If I had an album, a record album or a 45 that I thought my parents would find controversial, then I would put that in there as well. And for whatever reason, my parents were really good at not being particularly snoopy. So if I'd accumulated a handful of my own personal copies of these magazines, that's where I put them. I recall one time, and I think it really was only one time, that I uh, ran myself into a situation where I wished that I had a lock on my door. Uh, I didn't have a lock on my bedroom door at any point, I don't believe, growing up. And uh, this particular Saturday morning, I'd woken up early. I turned on the, the rock music radio station in the town where I lived. It was just my routine. And later on in high school, uh, I'd wake up first thing in the morning to that because one of the girls in my high school, who was a little bit older than I was, was doing an internship program as a DJ. And so that was nice. You're listening not only to you know, music you enjoy, but the DJ is a familiar person. It's somebody you know. So that was always kind of cool. This may have been a year or two before that, though. And I remember sitting on the floor near the closet door with the trunk open and was reviewing some of the materials in these magazines when my mom, without knocking, just walked right in. Now, it was lucky, I suppose, from a timing perspective that she had walked right in while I was literally just kind of thumbing through because it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility that there could have been a more embarrassing set of circumstances uh, in that kind of situation. But I was in no position to ditch the magazine and the magazine was in essence discovered. And again, I, I feel sorry for people who are in this you know, situation where you're saying, well, at what point do you begin to treat your kids like an adult? And at what point do you not? I know people for whom this would have been, you know, mandatory family counseling and, um, you know, the roof would have been blown off the house and the, the anger and the, the overreaction. That wasn't the response I got. The main reason my mom wanted to come in was that she'd heard that I was awake and she wanted somebody to go to the mall with her to go, you know, running, running some errands with her. And I was the only one who was awake enough to even be a candidate for that task. Well, you're not going to say no to a request to go to the mall or, you know, go to the grocery store in this situation because you've kind of been caught red handed as the saying goes. And boy, you want to talk about a very uncomfortable trip in the car and really something that cuts to that fine line of, was this a bad thing to do? Was this a good thing to do? And I, you know, really have a perspective now, of course, where I can look at this from my mom's point of view and say, wow, that couldn't have been her favorite day in parenting either. But her conversation with me was revealing on multiple fronts, because essentially her point of view was she wasn't going to take that away from me. It was mine. I needed to show more discretion. But she was frankly pleased that it was that particular kind of magazine. And I didn't pursue the conversation in too much more detail. I didn't want to know whether she was saying that she was glad it wasn't Hustler or something more extreme. 
the impression that I got was, and it was a pretty clearly communicated, although not explicitly communicated statement, was that she was glad I was looking at naked women as opposed to naked men. In other words, you know, when she was wrestling from her own personal perspective with what we perhaps could call her homophobia versus her sense of decorum, her sense of, of family modesty, she was willing to trade in a great deal of family modesty. She was very willing for there to be a Farrah Fawcett or Cheryl Ladd poster on my wall. The only you know male figures that were posters on my wall were Black Sabbath and, yes, the, the rock and roll posters, per se. But I didn't notice that subtlety then. It was only kind of years later that it sort of occurred to me that my mom's first response was, thank God he's looking at women. And that tells you something that probably will come up later in inappropriate conversations as I hit some of the issues related to gender politics and sexual ethics. There's no way that's not going to come up again in an election year. And this little piece of my background is probably an important hint as to what I've uh, overcome, perhaps as a way to, to word that in terms of how I was raised, where the worst thing I could do was not you know, buy a pornographic magazine too young. The worst thing I could do was probably something related to, you know, again, a gender identity issue. So with that sort of in mind, I want to segue a little bit away from my experience growing up and, you know, those moments of truth where you're deciding whether or not to smoke your first cigarette or, you know, whether or not to chew tobacco, all those sort of things. And instead, segue into me with my kids. And I think probably the best way to start it is to go from sort of one extreme to the other. And if my kids were ever to listen to this particular podcast, I think they'll recognize immediately where I'm coming from when I say something to the effect of googly boogly, goo boo, goo boo boogly boo. Very comfortable speaking a child's language to children and doing things with facial expression and with vocal inflection to make kids laugh or at least make kids comfortable. But when my kids were old enough to actually engage in conversation, to ask questions, because kids will hit that age. For some, it's as early as the latter part of you know, their two-year-old phase. For others, it, it can come as later as four or five. But usually somewhere between two, three, and four, you hit that why stage, where a conversation with a kid is essentially being hammered away with one why question after another. And it's perfectly understandable that a parent faced with that sort of situation would eventually drop the I because I said so line or I told you so or do as I say and not as I do. And I would tend to want to talk it out. I was more than willing to discuss things. In other words, one particular case came, come to mind in church where it was certainly some event where the family was involved and it was necessary for my entire family, including members of my my extended family, you know, the in-laws and my brothers and sisters and their husbands and were together in a church setting. And it was necessary for us to sort of kind of be on our best behavior because, again, we were at some point going to be joining the church that Sunday or um, leading in communion or uh, baptizing, again, a, a family member. And in one of these particular situations, my daughter would not cooperate. And so here's my wife. She has a uh, co-workers sitting, you know, nearby, uh, mom and dad are in the audience. Same with me, mom and dad are in the audience. And I, I've got an unruly 
three, four, five year old kid on my hands. And I remember having to pull her aside and at first doing it right there in the sanctuary, you know, sort of parent talking to kid and later pulling her aside sort of into the hallway outside the sanctuary and giving her a fairly direct, pointed, and to be honest, angry sort of explanation as to why she was being disruptive. And uh, I can remember people telling me later that they'd never quite heard anything like that before. My wife's you know, closest friend in, in that particular city was within earshot of the entire situation. And she said that she'd never really seen an adult talk to a child in that way and have it be a calming influence, uh, have the, the daughter not check out completely. But I explained to her kind of in a rapid fire, but a high, high level way, what was communion? What was baptism? What were we doing in church? What was it all about? Uh, I wouldn't describe the conversation as indoctrinational because I got her to calm down, kind of veer away from the tantrum and ask questions. And I did my best to answer those questions. Now, this doesn't always work perfectly. You can't really use a fairly full range of an adult vocabulary with a kid and have all of it sink in. There are times when I've experienced this even at work or in social settings where I can't use a full range of adult vocabulary with other adults and have it sink in. So what I, why would I presume that would work for somebody who was four or five or six years old? In this case, I remember one of the things that she asked me when she was, you know, got to her opportunity to raise questions was, you know, why was I so worried about doing what was right by God? Where was God? And I told her that God was invisible. And again, for a four or five-year-old, that, that's a tougher concept than I was you know, realizing when I was speaking. And I know this because later she went up to uh, my wife and asked her mom what it meant when daddy said God was a bubble. Bubble, she understood. Invisible, she did not. And yet, I think that C.S. Lewis, in some of his writings, Mere Christianity, for example, has points in time where he talks about if you want to be a more forgiving person, but you know that you're not. You know that you're basically unforgiving and vengeful in every conceivable way. The thing to do is to go ahead and pretend to be forgiving anyway. And maybe if your uh, heart is in the right place, and even if your habits are in the wrong place, that pretense can be turned into something sacred if the Holy Spirit takes over and conforms you to the effort that you're willing to make. And I think it works the same way with education. Yeah, you know, kids don't become smarter in school if no one ever uses terminology that they don't already understand. When your kid is too little to speak, every word you say, including googledy boogledy, is too difficult for them to understand. Now, there is some wisdom in sticking with cat instead of feline, for example. But I don't know that I'm comfortable saying that there's a starting point where if a kid hasn't reached X years old, you can't. You can't advance your vocabulary because all it does is force the kid to ask you what you mean, to ask you to explain yourself. And I think that maybe part of the reason that my kids have done well in school and been reasonably accomplished when they've tried to, to deal with big and complex tasks is that they have, they've asked questions because they've had to and they've gotten answers because, well, again, they've had to because their father wasn't necessarily inclined to dumb it down, at least not unless they asked him to. So a couple of things I'd like to mention in terms of kind of how that works. And is there a happy medium? One of them are a couple of films by the National Film Board of Canada, one called uh, 
Every Good Dog's Guide to the Playground. But the one I really want to cite is called Every Good Dog's Guide to Complete Home Safety. This is basically a 10, 12-minute movie at, at the longest. It's probably shorter than that. Could be available on YouTube. From time to time, it, it becomes available online. And other times, it, it gets restricted in its terms of its availability. I had it on an animated short collection. So I, I kind of bought it retail, for want of a better word. And what it was was a story of a, a couple who've had a child for the first time, who clearly are fairly clueless. They're the, the butt of the comedic jokes of the entire show, who decide that to impress their boss, they want to buy a dog. And it just so happens that the dog they buy is not just a dog in a pet store. He is. But Wally is also a safety dog. So whatever other kind of breed or breeding is represented there, this dog has a great ability to childproof a house. And if I'm remembering, this is just totally off the cuff here. I, I haven't seen this in a few months and um, haven't really studied the content of, of this show since my kids were very, very little. But there's something like 86 home and health safety tips for taking care of children or childproofing a home for children in the course of a cartoon that has the feel of sort of a Looney Tunes or a Dr. Seuss thing. If you imagine the cat in the hat, instead of showing up to generate havoc, Wally the safety dog shows up to restore order, but he's not necessarily successful at it. So my kids were watching shows like Every Dog's Guide to Complete Home Safety, which was filled with helpful hints, uh, uh, things not to do. Don't put your finger in electrical sockets and, you know, don't um, don't play you know, at the top of the stairs, those sort of hints, but in a way that was entertaining and trying to find the balance that I was always hit or miss trying to find myself between being educational, entertaining, and talking in a way that I was comfortable with, even if it was over my kid's head, but being willing to answer questions and provide support sort of along the way. One of the other things that my kids picked up from those sort of father to child conversations were cliches, for want of a better word. I don't think they're cliches because I think some of these you don't hear all the time. And for it to be truly a, you know, as ubiquitous as a cliche, it would have to be commonly held. Perhaps more of a Gregism, for want of a better word. But every now and then, you, you, my kids will spout them out. They, they remember them because they've heard them, and in some cases heard them more than once. And I'll just give one example of sort the kind of conversation that might might have with my kids if I was frustrated with them. And I'll give a exact situation, as a matter of fact. Again, with my daughter. Come home from the store, maybe have a box of cookies or something like that. Something that she wants, right? And you're going to hit a place with kids where you can satisfy their immediate desires and at some point that stops being good enough. And maybe that's age two. Maybe that's why they call it the terrible twos. Maybe it's a little bit older than that. But on this particular occasion, I'm dealing with, again, with maybe a five-year-old. And I gave her one of the cookies, but I didn't give her the second cookie. And we were down to maybe down to two cookies. These may have been the kind that you buy straight from the, uh, straight from the bakery. So slightly bigger, but not necessarily in a box, not like an Oreo box or anything. So I recall giving her the one cookie now and having her get pretty close to throwing one of those tantrums because she wanted both cookies now. And I said, well, no, no, you can have one cookie now and you can have one cookie later, but you're not going to have both cookies now. So the, the crying and the screaming and, you know, all the sort of childhood trauma, you know, rants started. And I told her in a very calm voice, I said, if you make it impossible for me to make you happy, I am going to lose interest in whether you're happy or not. Well, I think clearly that's a very good example of 
using dialogue and concepts that are going to be flying over the head of your average five-year-old. So I did explain it to her, explain it to her as clearly and directly as I possibly could. said, listen, you're going to have to be satisfied with the one cookie because if I'm going to have to put up with a tantrum from you, whether I give you one cookie or not, because there is no way I'm giving you both, at least not right now, I might as well give you none because I'm going to have to listen to the fit you're going to throw either way. This way, instead of you getting a cookie now and a cookie later, I get a cookie now. And if you keep throwing this tantrum, maybe I get both cookies over the course of the day and you don't get any at all. Because if you make it impossible for me to make you happy, I'm not going to care whether you're happy or not. I'm paying the price either way. I might as well have a cookie and enjoy the show. A show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Welcome to Geek Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So, what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. I think it's easy to understand why I would consider that to be an adult concept. This is actually a point of view about, you know, being satisfied with what you've been given and finding, finding where the line of enough is. I've shared this in church committee meetings. I've shared this in work uh, situations, work environments, work meetings. I've even had, when I worked in the movie theaters, to find a nice way to share this with customers. If you make it impossible for people to make you happy, people will lose interest in whether you're happy or not. I wasn't telling my kids this um, because I wanted a cookie. Actually, on some level, I probably did want a cookie. And I wasn't telling them this in some sort of punitive way. I wasn't trying to, to hit them with a stick instead of give them a carrot. I was telling them how the world works. This is something that we need to understand to do effective international diplomacy. It's something we need to understand inside workplace motivation and inside the military, as a matter of fact. If you make it impossible for people to make you happy, people will lose interest in whether you're happy or not. Let me tell you something that I'm very happy about, and it's a, it's a recent occasion. For uh, quite some time now, I have been frustrated with the smartphones that I've had. In fact, until I recently got an iPhone for Christmas, I would remark, and I think accurately, that my particular brand of smartphones that I'd had just weren't all that smart. And part of it was the brand that we were using. My workplace made a movement to back away from a contract we were in with one particular company and allow the individual members of, of you know, the workforce to get whatever cell phone they desired. And just as long as they could tap into email and, and could be plugged into the network in one way or another, then it was going to be you know, satisfactory. But before that, I was just, it drove me nuts that I had this phone that was supposed to be you know, just the latest, greatest. And it could not dial in to a podcast. It could not pick up a live radio show. It couldn't pick up a live you know, broadcast of a podcast that was being done streaming. It couldn't do any of those things. Well, now I not only have a phone that's capable of this now, and certain websites, uh, the uh, Simply Syndicated you know, website, has an application that you can use to dial into Simply Syndicated Radio and hear live broadcasts of shows that, that they do from time to time. Yeah, but the bigger one was being able to tap into any podcast, even if it wasn't live, to just on my phone, pick it up, stream from the phone. 
because one of the things I think everyone who's used an iPod before, or in my case, using my Zoom device, knows that if you don't have the planning to put the podcast you want on the MP3 player, well, then you're not going to have it available to listen to later. But that has all changed here. At least for me, it's changed just in the last few months. And I'm going to assume that this is a development that is, you know, easily the last couple of years, if not even sooner than that. It's called Stitcher. You can now hear inappropriate conversations while you're on the go, anywhere you are, using your smartphone or a laptop or an iPad and dialing into Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher Smart Radio is on-demand news, talk, and more, all to your mobile phone. The latest episode is always available to you. You don't have to sync to get it, and it's not using a lot of memory or storage um, on your device. It's available for iPhone, iPad, Android phones, and beyond. And downloading is easy. Go to Stitcher.com uh, or you know check it out at the App Store. Um, set yourself up with Stitcher Smart Radio, and you're ready to roll. What is Stitcher? Well, with Stitcher's free mobile app, you can listen to your favorite radio programs and podcasts anytime and anywhere you want. Standing in line at the grocery store, waiting for a kid's school play to begin, sitting in the audience, wherever you might be, right? Stitcher's wide breadth of programming lets you choose from the latest in sports, news, talk, business, entertainment, the media industry's premier content providers. I'm not presuming that inappropriate conversations is among the media industry's premier content providers. Actually, inappropriate conversations being there gives you a sense of the breadth of what's available. For me, it's the easiest way to stay connected, really, to the whole world while you're on the go. I recently had a couple of week long vacation, and one of the things I was able to do to keep up with the things that came out in podcasts I love that came out after I got on the plane to start my vacation and therefore weren't available to me in my MP3 player. Well, they were available to me via Stitcher, which I think is just absolutely fantastic. They also have uh, news updates that come to you throughout the day. So to me, Stitcher Smart Radio is a pretty good idea. I've enjoyed the things I've listened to, particularly uh, Masters of None is probably the number one thing I've listened to, one of the shows on simplysyndicated.com. But now that Inappropriate Conversations is on there, it gives me a way of making sure without having to sit behind my PC, sometimes behind my PC fairly late at night, I can, from anywhere on the planet, quickly check and make sure that the latest episode of Inappropriate Conversations uploaded and sounds the way I expect it to sound. So I realize this is a lot of talk about Stitcher, but it's new for me. This is the first, or the previous episode is the first episode that's that's up there. So if you haven't heard the uh, first part of what might on some ways feel like a two-part conversation about parenting and growing up, both of them are available on uh, at Stitcher.com. The Different Drummer this week has a very special place in my music-loving heart. I'm referring to Holly Cole and the Holly Cole Trio. And Holly Cole, literally, among the many eclectic things that I listened to, was the very first artist where the family had a complete consensus about her. I loved her. My wife came to love her. My kids both loved her, even at the youngest ages of maybe two and five or three and five years old. They liked listening to Holly Cole. Of course, they also liked listening to um, Sesame Street, Silly Songs, Elmo's Sing-Along, Guessing Game, stuff like that, and the Muppets. But Holly Cole was one of the adult things that the kids 
liked to listen to. And that really worked because it meant that no matter what else we were doing, if I'd had my fill of juvenile songs and juvenile music, I knew there was a safe place I could go that was going to work for both my wife and my kids in a way that was so much better than anything else that I might put on. And one of the bigger <clears throat> disappointments for me was the only time I've been able to see Holly Cole live in concert, I was kind of expecting her to come and play like at the university, you know, play in a recital hall where she was up on a stage somewhere. And I've recently learned that part of the reason that that doesn't always happen when Holly Cole makes um, somewhat rare trips into the U.S. on a larger U.S. tour is that she personally prefers being on a stage that's much more intimate, much closer to the audience not five or six feet up in the air and off from a first row of seats, but in a bar type setting, perhaps where people are milling around and she may be only be on a stage one or two feet above the ground. That's where I saw her on a concert that was originally going to be on a university campus where I was pretty comfortable with the idea of me and my, you know, fairly young kids at this point, probably ages um, six and nine going to a concert. So the whole family going to enjoy Holly Cole, not unlike the whole family, maybe going to enjoy the symphony or something. Instead, she ended up in a bar where the uh, age limit was 21 just to be in there. And the bar was in no position to sort of sort out who was 18 and who was 21. It was a 21 only bar with a 21 only show. Now she pretty much packed the place. But the funny thing about a place like this, a venue like that is you don't know whether she's packed it or herself, or whether it's a combination of the regulars and people who've come to hear her play because even in a cover charge situation where you had a ticket to get in, I got the impression that there were some people there who were just always at this bar and it didn't much matter whether there was a concert or not. They were paying their fee and they were going to sit in their usual stool. But most of the people at this concert were there to see Holly Cole perform and I was among them and I was one of the ones, perhaps maybe more than anybody else who had brought things with me on the off chance that I might be able to get an autograph. At the time, I worked in the record stores, actually in the corporate office of the record store, a chain that I was part of, and had gotten tickets, you know, comp tickets, actually, because I was part of the record chain. I was in charge of doing analysis for music like jazz, new age, country, um, soundtracks, international, world music, easy listening. And so she fit into that kind of genre, whether you consider her to be jazz or easy listening, it didn't much matter. She was mine my artists to analyze my uh, responsibility in terms of, you know, keeping the new release in stock and making sure that we had the right and appropriate levels of the previous music in all of the stores nationwide. So I got to go to her show and I did get a chance to talk to her after the show was over. And I brought with me two posters. Now, part of the reason I want to mention the posters is it does connect right back to my kids because I brought a poster for each one of my kids, neither one of whom of course were allowed to go to this particular show. And I asked Holly Cole to sign them, which she happily did. Uh, really, she graciously did. One of them, to my son, she just said, hey, I really like your name. thought that was kind of an interesting informal way to sign. And to my daughter, she you know, signed it, spelled her name correctly and everything, and said, sorry that you missed the show. Hopefully next time um, I'll get to see you out in the audience. Something like that. Very, very nice, very warm, very friendly. The thing I like the best about these, these uh, posters, they're basically promo posters for her tour. This was the Dark Dear Heart tour. Uh, the tour that actually produced my favorite Holly Cole song. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the, the tagline on the poster wasn't just the album cover kind of artwork. The tagline was, Holly Cole, she doesn't cover the songs. She uncovers them. And I think if I were to describe her in any one way, to try to make someone understand why 
I have such enthusiasm for this particular artist. It's that. It's her arrangements and her interpretation and her band's contribution to those arrangements and interpretation of songs that are either familiar, therefore you're taking a classic or a standard or even a rock song, it's crucial that you do something with it, that it not just be a cover in the traditional sense of the word. Or if you're introducing new music to an audience that may not be familiar with them, that you really do justice to the artist who wrote the song or the performer who made the original performance of that song popular, while at the same time putting your own stamp on it. And Holly Cole and her trio did that brilliantly. This vacation that I recently took, uh, the key music for me, the CD that I brought with me on the trip and stuck in the rental car and was basically... You know, if we weren't listening to the local radio, if we hadn't intentionally put on another CD, this was the go-to music, was her band, Aaron Davis and David Pilch, who put out an album together in the late 90s, I'm imagining, called Feast. Uh, instrumental music, basically piano and bass, which is, you know, their their contributions to the Holly Cole Trio, and really worked worked well in that sort of, you know, island environment where you're you're off on vacation, you need something that's light and airy, but also earthy and real and interesting. And the jazz music, I think, was was a key part of that. So you've got an artist with world-class musicians playing behind her, who for whatever reason has been given the green light or taken the green light on her own to take songs that either she loves or that are uh, interesting despite being not of her own writing and making something of them. One of the things I had to get used to when I first started in the record stores, I was a rock and roll guy. You know, rock and roll, alternative rock. I was probably more comfortable with classical and traditional jazz than I was actually with anything uh, easy listening country uh, or hip hop. Uh, these were not areas that I was familiar enough with to be authoritative, right? So I'm starting off as a manager of a record store. It eventually would become part of the corporate office in terms of the way assortments are selected and, and merchandise is distributed, making some of those planning decisions for the entire company. And in that sort of career trajectory, the interesting thing was, how do you grow into those other areas? Well, I've spoken before about how I taught my team members basically to say, if you're going to work for me in a record store, even if you think you're only going to work with me for four weeks during the Christmas season, you know, you've got to be honest with them, with customers. You've got to know enough about the music that you've got to be able to tell people what it is that you like best. And that's a good technique. But there's a step there where you maybe you're learning enough about new age music to be able to say which new age artists play piano versus guitar versus other instruments and which ones you like best. There's a difference between that and suddenly finding yourself all in, finding yourself adopting those other musical styles. I really thought the next musical style I was going to adopt was going to end up being something closer to hip-hop. You could see it coming. I mean, I'd, around this time, I had discovered Public Enemy. I had made a transition from Red Hot Chili Peppers into a Parliament Funkadelic sort of an approach. And it would be reasonable for somebody who had met me early on and known my baseline musical interests and then came along like a year into this record store job. You could easily look at me and say, yeah, the next place he's going to express his interest, the thing that he's learning new that he's really latching on to is rap and R&B. And that was a very real possibility. But at the same time, the other thing that was happening to me, equally as strong, equally as you know, powerful, was connecting, or in some cases maybe reconnecting, with country music and easy listening. 
my parents had a lot of country music and easy listening albums in their collection. Uh, my father and I, were he still alive, could have a robust conversation tonight even about the difference in the musicianship and musical styles between Julie London, uh, Joni James, and Giselle McKenzie. We could have that conversation tonight. So I had some background in easy listening. But one of the problems I always had with artists like Frank Sinatra or Sinatra imitators like Harry Connick Jr. and others was that they didn't write their own songs. I mean, I came from a, from a rock and roll tradition where it might be okay if every now and then Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin did a cover of something. It better be an interesting cover. I mean, Led Zeppelin always did covers of Delta Blues artists. That's interesting. That's an interesting rock and roll cover. But for the most part, you picked up a new album by your band. You expected them to be the intellectual owners of the property. You expected them to be contributing to the songwriting. And really, when you look at some of my favorite, you know, easy listening and jazz vocalists, people like Peggy Lee, you know, it never really occurred to me that I was somehow cutting them a lot of slack, that I didn't have the same expectation if I were to pick up an album by, again, Peggy Lee and say, I'm expecting that she, she wrote all the songs. Well, I'm not expecting that. Frank Sinatra around this time was getting late in, late in his years. Uh, in fact, he would die while I was working at the corporate office of the record store and trying to deal with, okay, what kind of inventory do we have of every song he's ever sung, every movie he's ever made, and how can we get that into the right stores to cover the demand that's going to happen when people realize, hey, Frank Sinatra's gone. One of the things I learned from, from tracking Frank Sinatra's music was that even if the song is familiar – even if it's been recorded a you know, hundred times, he felt like he had an obligation as an interpreter of song to bring something to it. And you could sell, watching um, documentaries about uh, his work with Quincy Jones and others and, and sort of the artistic process of making music, that that was literally going on. He was trying to find a way to make even the best-known songs his own. And if you look at some of my favorite country music artists, you have to make an exception and sort of leave aside people like Nancy Griffith a little bit. But people like Garth Brooks, by and large, not writing his own songs. And in fact, he's doing this genre-bending pastiche approach of doing country versions of pop and rock songs. Um, he's bringing in music and interpreting it. And once that sort of clicked with me, that it was okay for a country singer or an easy-listening singer to not be responsible for the writing of their own songs, especially if they were contributing in meaningful ways to the arrangement of those songs, or in the case of Sinatra, what we might call just the delivery, right? So you go back to jazz music and you say, yeah, a lot of times some of the best jazz ever written is, is reinterpretation of standards. When John Coltrane does My Favorite Things, it doesn't stop being an Oscar and Hammerstein song. It's just John Coltrane makes My Favorite Things one of his favorite things and shares it with us. In, in, a, in a manner of speaking. And that's what I found in Holly Cole. And what really clicked for me was her third album, where she did an entire release, her third international release, where she did an entire CD of Tom Waits songs. Every single song from Tom Waits, an interpretation of his music. Well, I'm telling you, this sort of alto, blue note, jazz style singer has almost nothing in common with the vocal style of Tom Waits. And I looked at the album somewhat skeptically, even as a Holly Cole fan, even as a Holly Cole fan who had already heard her record Tom Waits brilliantly 
And one of her favorite songs on the first album I ever heard was an interpretation of a Tom Waits song originally recorded for the Francis Ford Coppola film, One from the Heart. So I knew she could do Tom Waits. But you look at a song like The Heart of Saturday Night or Jersey Girl and say, you know, how's this going to work? Is she going to be able to pull it off? And she pulled it off, in my mind, very well. Well worth listening. Let me quickly talk a little bit about some of the Holly Cole songs that I enjoyed the most and some of the Holly Cole songs that my kids and I found common ground around. But I want to start at the very beginning. For me, the first time I heard Holly Cole was Blame It On My Youth, which was not her first album. She had done an album of standards before that was released primarily just in Canada. But Blame It On My Youth was her major label debut. This is the Capitol Recording Group, I believe the Manhattan wing, the jazz wing of Blue Note, where you know, she's being marketed to a jazz audience, but even the record label itself is standing out. It's being different. So this is a combination of uh, you know pop and easy listening with jazz, where standards are being used, but they're being used in a very different way. The album begins with, uh, in fact, song from the Jungle Book, Trust in Me, and follows up that with the Charlie Chaplin penned song, Smile. But she won me over as a fan really forever with the third track on that album, the uh, Frank Lesser song from Guys and Dolls, If I Were a Bell. I've heard If I Were a Bell recorded many times. Uh, I've heard it done you know, with Miles Davis and his particular jazz style. Oscar Peterson, which is a, a jazz style, but a very different side of the jazz spectrum. And, of course, if you've seen the movie Guys and Dolls or see the play, the song is usually you know, being sung by an inebriated character, and it sort of lollops along a little bit. But Holly Cole's version is absolutely jazz, and it absolutely swings with a fantastic guest solo from a violin player. And she turns the words, which can be of a confused young woman who doesn't know what to do, into something absolutely and unmistakably sexy. She found the subtext that Frank Lesser had written in the song, pulled it forward, and put it on display. A couple of tracks later in the album, she has the first of what would turn out in her career to be many Tom Waits remakes, a song called Purple Avenue. Now, just to use these two songs as an example, If I Were a Bell has this sexual subtext to it, but my kids weren't hearing that. We could listen to the same song at the same time. And when Holly sings the line, if I was a salad, I'd surely be splashing my dressing. They hear Holly Cole's a messy eater. I hear, well, something similar, but <clears throat> in other ways, dramatically different from that. Purple Avenue has that same, it's a Tom Waits song. You could hear you know, words like hoist me on my own petard and hear the Tom Waits version of that song and hearing Holly sing the words. She doesn't change the setting, but she changes the gender. That's why it surprised me a couple of albums later when she sang Jersey Girl straight up. And Jersey Girl essentially in her hands almost sounds like there's a homosexual focus to the song because, she, well, obviously she leaves the character a girl, but she sings with just as much passion as she would if she was Tom Waits doing the original. Blame It On My Youth really left an impression on me. And her next album, Don't Smoke In Bed, did little to dampen my enthusiasm because I think she expanded the range and the style of songs she was doing, including a much more country song in Tennessee Waltz than anything she'd done in the previous album, like God Will. And she tackled material that I think a less brave artist wouldn't. Uh, everything I got 
um, essentially a, a Ella Fitzgerald track. I'm not going to say she lives up to Ella. I don't think she was trying to live up to Ella Fitzgerald. Again, the notion of being a song interpreter, you're taking it and not trying to repeat what someone else has done. You're taking it and making it your own. My favorite song on Don't Smoke in Bed is actually a slow song, one of the ones that my kids didn't enjoy, one of the moments where they would indulge me. But don't let the teardrops rust your shining heart. Originally in everything but the girl track, in fact, written by that band, Holly Cole slows it down, brings in some slide guitar and even some steel guitar in the instrumentation in the background, and really turns it into, instead of a wistful number, an absolutely heartbreaking number that I like just as well when she's performed it live. I've spoken plenty about these, the album Temptation I'm going to skip over because I want to get to my favorite Holly Cole songs. Dark Deer Heart, the album that she toured to support, has a couple of them. One of them, I told him that my dog wouldn't run. An interpretation of a Patty Larkin song. And Patty Larkin is an artist well worth exploring if you have any, any interest in folk pop and you've never heard of her before. But this one, in Holly's hands taking the same album, bringing it into a jazz pop recording and switching the instrumentation from guitar piano to banjo. It shouldn't work, but it does. Because if anything, the strange and almost minimalistic use of the banjo call even more attention to the lyrics. Lyrics like, I read the Bible every day just to keep the demons at bay. Thank God when the sun goes down, I don't blow away. Those are Patty Larkin's words, but Patty Larkin's words bended to great effect by Holly Cole and her trio. Now, my favorite Holly Cole song originally appeared on Dark Deer Heart, but is actually performed much more to my liking, and apparently much more to her liking, on Romantically Helpless, which was her next studio release after it. In two consecutive releases, she included the song Make It Go Away, and I think that she felt like she slightly missed the mark on the first go and wanted to do better on the second go. This is an important moment as well, because Make It Go Away was co-written by Aaron Davis, a member of her band, uh, along with Laura Harding. So this is new material being introduced at this stage, not just a reinterpretation of classics. Now, there are reinterpretations of classics on Romantically Helpless. Uh, Don't Fence Me In, That Old Black Magic, Come Fly With Me. Several examples. But for me, the highlight, not of just of this album, but of my entire Holly Cole collection, is Make It Go Away. So when I'm listening to music with my kids and we had albums like the Temptation album with all the uh, Tom Waits songs on it, I'm focused in on some of the more slow and subdued numbers, Tango Chiller Soar, Take Me Home, Train Song. My kids enjoying the jazz style of vocal she's put into Jersey Girl and Little Boy Blue. It works for the whole family in that respect, because once again, my kids weren't troubled at all or uh, weren't their interest wasn't tweaked in any way that holly cole is singing a tom Waits song without changing the lyrics to, to them it's just a song where she sings a lot of that la 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 sort of stuff the number one reason for me of course that holly cole is a different drummer is that for somebody with as much passion about music as i've got she was a, a very crucial influencing factor in bringing an entire family together we've never really lived with the advantage that some young parents have of being close to family. We, uh, we moved a lot in the first couple of years of our marriage, and we're always something like three and a half or four hours away from the in-laws. 
which is, you know, that's not a bad thing. I think at least two hours away is probably a really good thing. Uh, create some distance. Set up your family without too much direct intrusion. Always have a little bit of warning when someone's dropping over. But we were also at the same time further away from her brothers and further away from my sisters than we really needed to be. And one of the things that I think that means for you is that when you're going to visit family, you've got a three-hour car ride on your hands. Because at that point, we, we didn't have the economic means to fly. And flying with kids is much a much bigger hassle than driving with kids. But again, just knowing that at some point in the car trip, we were going to hit that Holly Cole moment made every car trip for me just a little bit better. And sometimes your fondest memories of an artist and the things that kind of make them part of you, put them in that accompanist role, make them the different drummer playing the background music, becoming the soundtrack to your life has a lot more to do with the circumstances than even the songs themselves. The first time I heard Holly Cole was Blame It On My Youth, and the first CD I got was given to me as an in-store play, listening post kind of CD. Back then, I was working in the stores, and one of the jobs that I would have at least two, three times a year was controlling my own assortment. It's hard to think of this now, where most retail works with a centralized assorting process, but back then, this particular record store chain anyway, the manager and assistant manager of the store would have a responsibility of multiple times a year, touching every CD, touching every tape, looking at what it sold and determining, you know, what are we still carrying? Has theft deprived me of every copy of ACDC back in black? Well, I can't just look at that once a year. I've got to know that more often. And to make sure that if some new artist has come out, I'm on top of whether or not the sales of the new artist have generated you know, sales of the bands that artist used to be in, or if a band that has been you know growing in its popularity suddenly breaks through, are we carrying the right things from that artist's back catalog now that their sudden resurgence in popularity is going to create that interest in the rest of their catalog? And sometimes that would create some late nights because sometimes you can do this sort of, you know, inventory control work while there's customers in the store and while you're you know doing the daily, the day-to-day operations of, receiving shipments and pricing items and, you know, all that. But a lot of times when you're trying to do like a, a big section, like all of pop and rock or difficult section from a, from a theft perspective, like heavy metal or rap, you kind of need to be uninterrupted. And, you know, again, at least twice a year, I can remember pulling in, yeah, not an all nighter, but the store would close at nine or nine thirty, and you'd, um, you know, kind of settle in and around nine forty five or 10, you'd start a process that you might not be done with until one or two in the morning. Just kind of, again, getting to a finishing point where you're cataloging something. And this Holly Cole CD had come in. Well, usually you'd put in five or six discs in the magazine, put in the CD changer, and do this very tedious task while you're either shuffling through a lot of different albums or at least listening to a lot of different albums. But after my first couple of times through Holly Cole's Blame It On My Youth, I was uh, so taken by the record that I just said, no, you know what, I'm going to finish this task tonight with one CD in the player, and I'm going to listen to it as many times as, I, you know, as I'm doing this job. And at some point, it got to the point where I'd, I'd learned the words, learned the music, knew the solos, could sing along, could scat along, as the case may be. And of course, you're going to learn the words to any artist if you're forced to listen to them enough. But this wasn't forced. This was volunteer. This was quite literally love at first listen. I've recently picked up a live DVD called Steal the Night. It's actually a DVD-CD combination, a live album that she has put out 
kind of biding time, really, as she prepares to put another studio album out for the first time in more than just a couple of years. One of the things I'm enjoying the most about that uh, DVD is the bonus features, documentaries about her, the beginning of her career and moving from Nova Scotia to Toronto, documentaries about the band, but also documentaries about her fame and their tour in Japan. I don't have a really good explanation for why Japan loves Holly Cole so much. I'm just glad to be right there with them. And one of the things that you know really struck me is that you don't need to understand the words to get a lot out of even a vocal jazz performance. I'm blessed, I guess, in this sense that I do understand the words and know the context of them. And I understand where these songs have been recorded before and how Holly Cole's interpretations are different. Some people have told me in the past that they don't really like Holly Cole's vocal style, that for a jazz singer, they'd rather have an Ella Fitzgerald. They'd rather have a Sarah Vaughn. They'd rather have a Billie Holiday. I understand that. I don't think that Holly Cole is trying to be Ella Fitzgerald, though. I think that she has an alto voice rather than a soprano. She may not have the, the most tremendous range in terms of, you know, people like Mariah Carey may have a better range top to bottom or, or Whitney Houston. But I don't like what Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey have done by staying inside the pop genre and in those very narrow confines in the music that they produce. I feel like Holly Cole, as an artist, takes more chances. She takes songs that should be old and tired and breathes new life into them. And she introduced people like me to artists that I might not have otherwise heard before and did so by taking songs and making them her own. This is among the things that I think I like best about country artists like Garth Brooks and George Strait. It's certainly one of the things that the world liked most about Frank Sinatra. And I don't think it's overpraise within this narrow confine of saying, what does it mean for you to be a music interpreter? What does it mean for you to be a jazz pop music arranger? To put Holly Cole right there in that company. Because she's accomplished something that those other, perhaps more famous names, never did. She's been able to reach three, or maybe even four generations of my family, simultaneously. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And the Podbean website has comments enabled for the shows at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. And don't forget, Inappropriate Conversations is now available on Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks for listening.
by Kevin McLeod.